You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen. Welcome to Workplace Perspective. I'm Teresa McQueen. As we roll into the new year, there exists an unavoidable urgency to stop even for the briefest moment, and take stock of where we are in our lives and our careers and inevitably compare that to where we want to be or where we think we should be. In this state of reflective mentality, we dedicate this first episode of 2018 to taking stock. To start off our episode, we'll look at some varied perspectives on the legal practice and its changing landscape. We'll talk with Dragonfly Coaching's Julie McCoy about the impact of life coaching and how it can help people at all stages of their careers recognize and realize their true potential. Then we'll end today's episode by answering a listener question about the best way to handle a tricky workplace manners dilemma. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The legal profession, despite dire predictions to the contrary, is evolving and transforming. The millennial impact, as well as big data and sweeping technological advances, are changing the landscape of legal practice today. And, as with all change, some view these advances and impacts in a positive light, while others see them as more of an erosion of old-school respectability. Depending on which side of the coin you prefer, the first part of a new year could be a time for renewal and re-energizing, or reflection and change. To get you started down whichever path you choose, I thought I would share my thoughts on what I see as two emerging trends for the legal profession in 2018. The first trend I see is an embracing of the millennial generation. Yes, I said an embracing of the millennial generation. Just as every generation before it, from the boomers to the Gen Xers, the millennials are putting their indelible stamp on the legal profession. And as with each new generation, the millennial professional has much to learn, and much to offer. Millennials challenge us to look deeper into the why behind our professional actions and to spell out with a bit more accuracy our goals and aspirations impacting both ourselves and our clients. I choose to see this as a good thing. Challenge yourself to check your narrative when it comes to the millennials in your professional world. See the faults, since we can't seem to help ourselves, but also open your mind to the positive impacts this generation can contribute to our respected profession. The second big trend I see for 2018 is in technology and its expanding role in the legal profession. Technology has the ability to enhance or detract from our professional experience. As the profession becomes more tech-savvy, we're seeing more and more ways to integrate technology, e-commerce, and social media into our respective practices. Beyond LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, attorneys are seeking out less traditional online communities like Lawyer Smack and its predecessor, Lawyer Slack and finding new and exciting ways to connect, keep up to date on what's happening in the industry, find clients, share relevant, I'll bet nerdy insights, mentor, and make cross-referrals. The fact is, technology in the legal industry is here to stay. And if you don't make an effort to keep up, you risk falling behind, becoming irrelevant, missing important opportunities to reach colleagues and clients, and most important, in my opinion, 
you run the risk of falling into obscurity. There are very few professions where experience is a valued commodity. Luckily, the law is such a profession. Staying physically fit and integrating technology into your professional experience will see you practicing law long into your golden years. You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Have an interesting perspective on where you think the legal profession is headed in 2018? We'd love to hear it. Email us your views at perspective at sapphirelegal.com. Life coach, personal coach, or professional coach. No matter what you call them, more and more professionals are utilizing the services of these dynamic individuals to help create more fulfilling professional and personal lives. Coming up next, we'll talk with Julie McCoy of Dragonfly Coaching about the thought-provoking and creative process used by life coaches to inspire professionals at all levels to maximize their personal and professional potential. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Sapphire Legal is getting ready to launch another handbook workshop. An active 2017 legislature brought significant changes into the workplace for 2018. Make sure your organization's employee handbook is up to date by joining us on March 9, 2018 for our first workshop of the year. You can find more information and registration details on our website. Hi, Julie, and welcome to Workplace Perspective. I want to thank you for joining us today to talk about life coaching. Thank you for having me, Teresa. I'm really excited to be here to talk about one of my favorite new topics. That's great. Well, today's episode is all about taking stock and looking forward into the new year. So I thought it'd be really great to have you on today's episode to kind of give us a perspective on what life coaching is and the process that you use as a life coach to help people create more fulfilling careers. But before we get started, why don't you tell our listeners about your very interesting background and how Dragonfly Coaching evolved? Sure. Thank you for that opportunity. So I spent 35 years as a trial and appellate lawyer, which I say now was a calling of my head. It was a a challenging and interesting career. But upon deciding to retire in 2016, I needed something to occupy my time and also my heart. And so I found life coaching as a calling of my heart. I love coaching. I have a background in psychology, a BA in in psychology, as a matter of fact, that I never used. I wasn't interested in pursuing psychotherapy at this point in my life, but coaching was kind of a way to help people and to bring my strong skills in in listening and engaging with people to help them transform their lives. And the dragonfly, you may or may not know, is the universal symbol of transformation, which is why I chose it as my moniker for my coaching business. That's great. I didn't know that. That's really cool. And lots of stuff I didn't know. I didn't know that you had an undergraduate degree in psychology. So this all makes perfectly good sense. And I love this head-heart distinction that you made. I think that's really important. And I think it's a fantastic topic. And it's a great career choice for you, I think. So to start off with, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about what life coaching or professional coaching actually is. So why don't we begin with you kind of explaining what a life coach is and who typically uses a life coach? So a coach is a lot of things. A coach is the client's advocate, champion, sounding board, 
monitor in terms of accountability, holding the client accountable to what he or she has said, he or she wants to achieve through the coaching, what their goals are, taskmaster, and most of all, a really good listener to reflect back to the client what the client has said and, and sort of bring consciousness to the way the client is engaging with life, their personal goals and endeavors, if that makes sense. It does. Is it accurate to say that life coaching isn't just about achieving goals, though? Absolutely. Yes, that is part of it. And for most people, it's a big part of it. But what most clients find over the course of coaching is that there's learning that comes out of it that not only assists the client in achieving the immediate goal, what they've presented in the coaching and said they want to accomplish, but also in going forward in their lives and achieving goals as they show up and dealing with challenges as they show up. It's both about forwarding the client's action, we say in coaching, which is the way by which goals are achieved, of course, is doing things, but it's also about deepening the client's learning and finding those insights that will enable the client in future situations not to require the services of a coach all the time, but to apply the learning they've had in their prior coaching in their life experiences as things evolve for them. I like that aspect of it. On workplace perspective, we try to address issues facing both employers and employees. And as I'm listening to you talk about life coaching, it really seems to me that there are potential benefits for the workplace. So a real opportunity to kind of maximize employee potential and improve not only an organization's culture, but their bottom line as well. Do you see that in your practice? Absolutely. Well, not so much in my practice because I coach individuals. I do coach people on work-related issues. But I think this is an important point you raised because coaching is a huge business in corporations around the world, especially large ones, have realized the value of coaching in really leveraging their workforce and getting the most out of their employees and developing employees who are receiving the greatest fulfillment from their jobs that they can. So I think that's a very important point that you raise is is how much businesses have embraced coaching as a business development tool. Well, I think, you know, I talked about misconceptions, and I think one of the misconceptions is that people look at life coaching or professional coaching as a means to move away from what they're currently doing. In other words, they're disappointed in their job or they're unhappy and they're seeking something else. And it seems like that's part of it, but it's not necessarily always someone who's looking for a change, right? Right, exactly. I mean, sometimes it's about wringing the most enjoyment out of what you're doing. You know, for some clients, they've made the correct choice for them in terms of a fit, but but they're just going about it in ways that aren't serving them, that are working contrary to their their actual values and their life goals. So sometimes it's about it's about finding fulfillment in the what is rather than changing the what is to something else. Yeah, I like that idea. That was a revelation to me. I always thought people who use life coaches were just people who were unhappy and were looking for something different. And I like this idea that there is an aspect of it that can be used to help people, like you said, find a more fulfilling life in their current career as opposed to just upheaval. And now you mentioned a distinction between something of a corporate and a personal aspect. So do some coaches focus on personal coaching and others on professional coaching, or is the process sort of driven by the client needs? 
you know, it's driven by the client need. However, that said, there are some coaches who strictly work in-house in corporations, and they may have some individual clients on the side, but for them, it's pretty much a full-time job. For me, I prefer to work just with individuals. It gives me greater flexibility in my schedule, but that's not to say that I don't work with my clients on work-related issues. I do. I have a number of clients I coach on issues revolving around job satisfaction and job-related goals. Well, I would think that sometimes, from what you're saying and, and the things that we're talking about, that a coach really needs to be able to sort of address the hard truths with a client. So do you find that your legal background is an advantage in that regard? So this this idea of being able to kind of form a relationship but still retain objectivity and a little bit of distance to be able to deliver that particularly hard truth. Yes, and that's a good question. Yes, I do find that my background as a lawyer is perhaps helpful getting me over that threshold. You know, no one wants to confront a client with something that's going to be so hard that they scare them away. Um, But, you know, as a lawyer, I always told young lawyers this, one of the hardest things to do is to tell your client what the client does not want to hear, such as, you know, your odds in this case are not good. If you go to trial, you are likely to lose, and here are all the reasons why. In other words, to to tell the client the other side's case. A very hard thing to do, and it's also very necessary if you're going to have integrity as a lawyer and be effective. Likewise, as a coach, in order to maintain integrity with my client, I need to be completely truthful, and sometimes that means telling the client things they don't really want to hear. But I I like the idea that there's somebody out there you can rely on to do that, you know, that you can form a relationship with someone on a professional level and have them be honest with you instead of worrying about sort of patting you on the back all the time or attaboy, attaboy. Sometimes you need to hear the real truth about things. And it's great to be able to have someone to rely on, like a life coach, to help you through that. So it just seems to me life coaching or professional coaching really does seem like a no-brainer when it comes to making professional and personal improvements. But I can hear the excuses now. Oh, that's a great idea, but you'd have to be an executive or a C-suite candidate to afford such a luxury as that or something like the standard, I'm just too busy. So are these myths or is there really some validity to those types of excuses? Well, I mean, there's some validity to them. As I sometimes say in coaching clients, there's a morsel of truth in every lie, right? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> the, the truth is, as to the time excuse, you know, everybody is busy. And I find that when people really get into the coaching, when we really dig into how their time is being spent, and they begin to make a lot more conscious choices about what they're doing with their day, rather than just going by default, you know, default defaulting into activities, defaulting into lunches and dinners and things that they don't really necessarily want to do, it's amazing how much time is freed up when uh, one just focuses on making conscious choices and saying yes to some things and no to others. And as for the financial aspect of it, Yes, of course, it costs money, but it's, you know, it's an investment in yourself. And so people who really have a burning desire to achieve some goal, make some change, or really have deepened insight into themselves, you really don't mind parting with the cash. And I will say this, um, coaches work on many different scales. So, you know, if, if an executive coach who's charging 
$400 an hour isn't a good fit, there's probably someone out there who's charging substantially less. So by sort of shopping around and figuring out who's a good fit and negotiating a little bit, most coaches uh, like me are, are pretty negotiable and willing to work with clients within their financial means. I think that's a great point. And I like your idea about getting real when it comes to your time management. I think that's a podcast and a half all by itself. Let's say uh, someone was interested in hiring a life coach. How do they go about choosing the one that's right for them, given the fact that some work on a more personal level, some delve deeper on a professional side, and some are a kind of combination of both? How do you go about finding someone who's a good fit for you? I think the best way is sort of to ask around. Probably everyone among their group of friends and acquaintances knows someone who has worked with a coach, either at work or on an individual basis. And then once you have a name and contact information, most coaches offer a free, some call it a sample session, an introductory session, but basically it's like a half hour coaching session in which you can actually experience what the coaching is and see if the person seems like a good fit. And likewise, it's an opportunity for the coach to see if the client is a good fit because this is a very close relationship. So there needs to be basic uh, level of trust within the relationship. So those sessions are a good way to, to go about that. And sometimes if someone is not a good fit for me or there's some issue, a conflict issue perhaps, and I can't work with them, I know a lot of other coaches to refer people to, and I do that. That's a good thing to know. And then are there any particular types of questions that someone could ask? How do you go about figuring out if someone's actually a right fit for you? You know, I think the best way is just to get a feel for how they coach. Because the hard thing about coaching is trying to describe it. I mean, I'm doing my best, but the best way to really understand what it is and how a coach coaches, their particular style, is to experience it. So I would say, you know, even if the coach doesn't volunteer that they will do a sample session, I would ask that question. Will you spend a half hour or 45 minutes with me on the phone and, and coach me on a topic of my choosing so that I can see how you approach it and if it seems like it would be a fit for me? You mentioned face-to-face. -face. Is coaching something that really needs to be done face-to-face? like a counselor, patient, client kind of thing? Or is it something that can be done long distance? Yeah, most coaching is actually done over the phone, the exception being in-house coaching, although I think some of that is over the phone too when employees are traveling. But most of my coaching is over the phone. If someone really wants to meet in person, I will meet with them in person. But I find that, you know, provided that there aren't a lot of background distractions, and that's something I always cover with clients at the beginning, the importance of a quiet environment and minimizing distractions, provided that the environment is controlled in that way, I can get a very good feel for what's going on with my client over the phone. It's a, it's kind of a muscle you develop over time. Well, Julie, I think our time is about up. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? I would just say thank you again for the opportunity to be here. I strongly believe in life coaching. I've seen how it transforms people's lives and is a hugely positive experience uh, for them. So anyone who is interested in coaching, I would just encourage them to reach out to a coach. My door is open. I offer sample sessions. Other coaches do as well. But I would just encourage anyone who is interested in possibly coaching to pursue it and find out more about it. Well, I want to thank you again for joining us. You have given our listeners some great tips and some really good insights. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
If you'd like more information about Julie McCoy or Dragonfly Coaching, you can find links for each on our website podcast page. Stick with us for our remaining few minutes as I answer a listener question about the best way to handle a tricky workplace manners dilemma. Welcome back. On our podcasts and at the end of my live presentations, I'm always asking people to email me their questions or to share their most interesting etiquette experiences. A few weeks ago, I received an email from a listener asking for etiquette guidance in relation to a sticky workplace situation. The email read, Dear Workplace Perspective, I've been losing sleep over a situation at my office involving what I think now may have been a breach of my boss's trust. Part of my job involves organizing and filing papers off my boss's extremely disorganized desk. Just before the holidays, while trying to catch up before going on vacation, I came across notes from a meeting my boss had had with her boss concerning the work performance of a somewhat close colleague. I will admit that after noticing my colleague's name, I did shamelessly read the document in its entirety. The notes discussed a lack of performance and suggested, in pretty straightforward terms, that this colleague's suspension was pretty much a done deal. I wasn't sure what to do with the information and really felt like I'd violated my boss's trust. In the end, I kept my mouth shut. But I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop on my colleague, and it's impacting my professional relationship. Did I do the right thing? Any suggestions? Sincerely, guilt-ridden. Well, I want to thank you, guilt-ridden, for sharing your experience, first off. And I have to say that under the circumstances, I really think you did the right thing in keeping what you knew to yourself. Letting your colleagues know about a possible suspension would have really been a breach of your boss's trust. Whether your boss ever found out or not, snooping and tattling really is a slippery slope. And beyond that, there's likely to be a lot going on behind the scenes that you may not know about. And the suspension could have just been one option in many, or it might have been discussed as a last resort. There are so many ways to handle poor work performance. And even if it may have seemed to you to be a done deal, it could have, again, just been a suggested avenue, but not necessarily something your boss was ready to put into action just then. And then, of course, there's your colleague's perspective. Finding out about a possible suspension really might have contributed to the problem by distracting and stressing out your colleague to the point where they may not have been able to turn their performance around. There's also the possibility that sharing what you knew and how you found out about it might actually have a negative impact on your working relationship with that particular colleague. Knowing that you have such private information about the colleague's career and professional reputation, specifically that they're failing in their job performance, might actually cause them to pull away from you in embarrassment. And it also might reflect badly on you if word got around that you not only snooped, but shared, calling into question, of course, your ethics and your trustworthiness. As for the strain on your work relationship, I think the best thing you can do is to try to put the information out of your mind and just be prepared to wait and help where and when you can, when and if your colleague shares their predicament with you, if in fact they even find themselves in that particular predicament at all. This is a great lesson in listening to that gut instinct, I think. Guilt-ridden immediately sensed that snooping around the boss's desk was a breach of trust. Not acting on that evil impulse, as it were, to share, even with the best intentions, really took a lot of character, and I commend you for that. In these times where ideals like company loyalty just aren't what they used to be, I think the true value of personal integrity still has a lot of rewards. And I've always believed that the true measure of integrity is how you act when no one else is watching. 
If you have a workplace etiquette question or unique etiquette experience to share, please email us at perspective at sapphirelegal.com. We'd love to hear from you. I hope you'll pass along our web address, sapphirelegal.com, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous podcasts. This has been a Sapphire Legal production. Claudia Shamba was the assistant producer, and our music was composed by Stephen Versaloni. Join us next time for another episode of Workplace Perspective, raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. <laughs>